You're listening to Beyond the Sermon, the podcast of First Methodist Church in Collingswood, New Jersey. Our goal is not only to share our sermons, but to go beyond the sermon in conversation about what we're learning and what God is doing in our lives and in our community. This sermon comes from our 2022 sermon series, Digital Babylon, Developing Resilient Faith in Exile. You can find more information about our church at fumccollingswood.org. Thanks for listening. Today, we are wrapping up our series, Digital Babylon, and I hope that over the course of these uh, six weeks, God has poked some areas of your life and your heart and has invited you into a more deeply transformational relationship with himself. We're confronted each day with that choice of whether or not we're going to recognize the influence that the kingdom we're living in has on us. Whether or not we're going to remember our identities as citizens of another kingdom. And whether or not we're going to resolve in our hearts to stand firm in the face of cultural coercion. The research that we've been looking at in this series, which comes from the Barna Group, tells us that resilient disciples are the 10% of those raised in the church who still engage in a local church body, who trust in the authority of Scripture, who are personally committed to Jesus, and who express a desire to see the world around them transformed through their faith. These resilient disciples exhibit five practices, right, that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. They've been the focus of our sermon series We've looked at meaningful intergenerational relationships and experiencing intimacy with Jesus, developing cultural discernment, and clarifying vocational discipleship. And today, we're going to look at the fifth and final practice in our series. And that fifth and final practice is countercultural mission. In a culture like Digital Babylon, where entitlement and self-centeredness are rampant, we need to get our eyes outside of ourselves, and countercultural mission is one way that we do that. When a lot of people think about the younger generations, whether that's millennials or Gen Z, they tend to think of them in pretty negative stereotypes, right? You see that all over the place on social media and stuff. Uh, But I think this has more to do with the generation gap than it does with any of the specific generations that are involved. Because the trends that we see within the younger generations aren't absent from other generations. They've just been cultivated to a different extent in the generations that have come of age in the last couple decades. It was, after all, right, the boomers and the Gen Xers who have raised the millennials and the Zoomers, Gen Z. A generation, they say, is always a reaction against and an extension of their parents' generation. But entitles a word that's been thrown around a lot when speaking of the millennial generation. We can see that in the reality, or we can see that in the reality that most 20-year-olds, most 20-something-year-olds today expect to have attained their dream job within five years of finishing their education. So five years after graduating, they expect to be in their perfect dream job. And at first, that sounds like a pretty startling 
claim. But when you start to think about all those participation trophies that young adults received during their childhood or about the many times that you were told you can be anything you want to be or you can a dream, you can achieve all of your dreams or the countless practices and performances they were carted around to. It doesn't take much imagination to see the connection. When we've made idols out of our children or tried to use them to fulfill our unrealized childhood dreams, it's no wonder they grow up thinking that the world is centered on them. But the hard part is, this kind of self Centeredness is often hidden behind the language of pursuing happiness, right? In fact, 51% of teenagers say that their top goal in life is to be happy. That's their goal, to be happy. Now, happiness isn't a bad thing, right? We want people to be happy, but, but happiness in digital Babylon is almost always focused on a feeling that I experience individually, right? We find that definition of happiness only by looking inside ourselves and then pursuing what we see there. However, the great German reformer Martin Luther said that the heart turned in on itself isn't happiness. He said that's the definition of sin. A heart turned in, a heart curved in on itself. The natural consequence of a generation or an individual raised to embrace a me-first, self-indulgent, self-centered way of life is going to be an expression of entitlement. When your whole life has been about making you happy, and you being happy has been raised to the highest good, the highest priority, you begin to expect certain things in your life to go a certain way. You believe you deserve something, even if you haven't done the work to earn that something. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone here to hear that self-centeredness and entitlement are so prevalent in digital Babylon. However, that doesn't change the fact that one of the questions that everyone is asking is, can I make a difference? We want to know not just why am I here, like we talked about last week, but can my life make a difference? Am I able to change things, to make an impact? Am I leaving behind a legacy? Now, sometimes our motivations for making a difference can actually feed our self-centeredness. Right, Like when we seek to make a difference in order to make a name for ourselves or to salve a guilty conscience or as a reaction against something that we are unwilling to take the time to learn about and understand. Other times, our motivations are more altruistic. We want to improve someone's life or we want to solve a certain problem we see in the world. But the biggest difference we can make comes when we lay aside our motivations, no matter how good they may be, and we hitch our desire to make a difference to the mission of the cause of Christ in the world. We may not be the Blues Brothers, 
but we're on a mission from God. Ask your parents. They'll, they'll fill you in. But when we engage in God's countercultural mission, we are declaring with our lives two things. First one, we're declaring that we believe God is powerful and active and intentional in the world. We're trusting that God is doing something in the world, not just a long time ago, not just in the stories of scripture, but today, right now, in this moment, God is powerful and active and intentional and working in the world. But the second thing we're declaring with our lives is that we believe that God wants his people, his followers, to play a role in redeeming people and restoring the world to himself. You see, God shares his mission with us. He wants to love people not only through us, but also with us. He's got a role for us to play. This idea of countercultural mission that came up in the research is kind of where the rubber hits the road, right? You see, you may have been okay when we were talking about intimacy with Jesus or meaningful relationships and cultural discernment, maybe even uh, vocational discern, uh, nope, vocational discipleship, even though that one started to get a little bit into how we live our day to day lives where people can actually See it, but countercultural mission, it takes those four things that can be fairly inward and it directs them outward where everybody can see. And maybe we could best describe countercultural mission is, is that sense that we are on a mission for the cause of Christ in the world. And we have an absolute or a resolute orientation toward waking, walking against the grain of culture. So a sense of mission for the sake of cause, for the cause of Christ in the world and a resolute orientation toward walking against the grain of culture. It's about what we do together as the body of Christ to be on mission together and to influence the world towards God's redemptive purposes. And we see this kind of countercultural mission, this kind of resilient faith on display in the life of Elijah. Obadiah. I really meant Obadiah. Y'all pray for me. I, I, I'm struggling today in the second service. But we, we see this kind of countercultural mission, this kind of resilient faith on display in the life of Obadiah, like in the story that Jeremy read for us from 1 Kings. Chapter 18. This story takes place three and a half years into the drought that God sent on Israel as a result of the idolatry that King Ahab and his wife Jezebel had led the people into. So God sent the prophet Elijah to declare that there was going to be a drought until he said otherwise. You see, Elijah had been living in the land of Israel, the promised land right along with all those other people. But the culture around him had changed. The people of Israel had turned their backs on God. They had turned away from the God that they knew. So God sent Elijah to say that that idolatry was going to have consequences. There wasn't going to be any rain. And now, here we are in the story, three and a half drought-filled years later. 
And God tells Elijah to go and show himself again to Ahab so he could send rain. But in the meantime, the people of Israel had been suffering under this drought. Elijah had been hiding out and and God had provided for him by the brook from the ravens and, and in the widow's home in Zarephath. But the drought had led to a famine in the land. And the people were suffering. And so one day Ahab sends Obadiah. Remember, Obadiah was like that chief palace administrator for him. And he sends him out. You go in one direction. I'll go in the other direction. We're going to check all the places where there's usually water. The springs, the streams, the valleys. To see if we could find any grazing land. So they don't have to kill their animals. And as Obadiah is going, he meets Elijah. He runs into The prophet Elijah. Now even though Obadiah works for Ahab. And he oversees everything going on in Ahab's palace. Obadiah hasn't gone along with the agenda of Ahab and Jezebel. In fact, while Jezebel was busy killing off the prophets of God. Because they spoke against her idolatry. And they wouldn't support her reign as their king and queen, Obadiah took a hundred of God's prophets. He split them into two groups and hid them away in two caves. And then he proceeded to, to provide for them food and water. And where do you think the palace administrator got food and water to provide for a hundred prophets? This was Ahab's own food and water that was supporting them. Talk about a gutsy move, right? If Obadiah was discovered, he would have been executed right alongside those prophets that he was hiding. But Obadiah had a countercultural mission that God had given him to be a part of. And he was willing to risk everything to be faithful to God. And when Obadiah meets Elijah, Elijah sends him to go and tell the king that Elijah's returned and he wants to see him. And this is just too much for our friend Obadiah. He's terrified that he's going to go and tell Ahab this message and Elijah's just going to disappear. Right? And Ahab will kill Obadiah for lying to him. Obadiah says, what have I done wrong? Really? Is this the reward I get? Ahab's been searching for you. He's made other nations swear that they're not hiding you. And if I go and tell him and you disappear and you're not here, when we come back, I'm the one who's going to end up dead. Don't you know that I've been worshiping God since I was a kid? Don't you know about this? these prophets that I've been hiding in the caves? Don't you know about the risks I've already taken? Now you want to get me killed? And Elijah says, yep. Go tell Ahab. Well, not that he wants him to get killed, but he's sending him on this mission. And so Obadiah goes and finds him, trusting again that God will honor his obedience and his faithfulness. And this is the story that leads right into that famous story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel when God sent fire on Elijah's sacrifice and showed himself to be the God of Israel. Which is an incredible example of countercultural mission in and of itself. But we don't have time for that today. 
as much as I love that story. It's no accident that we have a kid named Elijah in our family. I love these stories. But that is resilient faith, right? That we see in Obadiah. It's, it, it's the kind of faith that stands firm in the face of cultural coercion and lives in a vibrant life depending on the Spirit of God. I'm pretty sure that Obadiah knew that Ahab would kill him if he found out about the prophets hidden in the caves. But he did it anyway. And Obadiah was convinced that Ahab was going to kill him if Elijah wasn't where Obadiah said he was going to be. But he did it anyway. Because Obadiah knew the God he worshipped. He saw the lies in the culture around him. And he had this unique calling from God. And all this came together. And Obadiah responded to God's invitation to join him on mission. And God showed himself to be true to the people of Israel. And he showed himself to be true to Obadiah. Because of Obadiah's faithfulness. So what does it look like for us to live as resilient disciples on countercultural mission in the midst of our exile in digital Babylon? I think there are things that God wants us to do in the context of the culture that we live in. And as I wrap up this message and this series, I want to look at three of those things. Three categories for us to consider as we seek to live faithful lives and prepare disciples for the world that exists rather than for the world we wish existed. Number one, if we're going to stand firm against cultural coercion, we've got to choose courage over safety. You see, going against the grain, standing when everyone else is bowing down, hiding prophets when the the authorities are looking to kill them, that's scary. And we might not be called to do those same exact things, but there are things that we're called to today that are scary. We've got to acknowledge our fear and choose to trust God in spite of it. Millennials who have dropped out of church reported that among their chief reasons for doing so was the feeling that their church was too overprotective. Their church tried to keep them too safe, even in the exercise of their faith. But remember, friends, our purpose is not to protect our children or our disciples from the world around them, but to prepare them for it. We don't do our young disciples any favors by teaching them to put safety first. Life isn't going to be safe, and we've got to choose to put the mission God has given us first. And that kind of courage doesn't generally just happen. It has to be taught. It has to be reinforced. It has to be modeled. And those who become resilient disciples are willing to take epic risks to say and to do what is right. But they need to be trained for it. We've got to learn to choose courage over safety. Which leads us to number two. If we're to remain 
faithfully, resiliently faithful, we've got to prepare for difficult conversations. The ability to engage in difficult conversations is one of the most critical practical skills needed for life in digital Babylon or life in exile. Even among resilient disciples, it is more often true that they have more confidence in what they believe than they have clarity about how to express those convictions. They know what they believe, but they don't know how to communicate that to the people around them. And and let's be honest. There are a lot of difficult conversations that are happening today or that need to happen. Without getting kicked off the stage, here are a few. A few of the areas where we need to have tough conversations. First one is politics. Too often, our churches get so tied in with one side of the aisle or the other, Democrat or Republican, that we tend to agree more with non-Christians within our own party than we do with Christians in the opposite party. But the reality is, while those may be political parties in the kingdom we live in, There are no political parties in the kingdom we belong to. And I understand many of you feel that you have a scriptural basis for why you hold the political positions you do. And that's true on both sides of the issue. I don't actually know any followers of Jesus who say, I know my political affiliation is antithetical to to God, but I'm going to hold it anyway. It doesn't happen. And I know it's hard to believe, but there are people who vote for the other party who don't entirely agree with the whole of the platform of that party. We need to have these hard conversations and let the kingdom of God be our primary allegiance. The gospel, our greatest focus. We've got to be willing to have these conversations. Another area of conversation we need to have is the relationship between science and faith. Too many young people feel today they have to either accept the science of today or the Bible as true. But we can't accept both. We can't find truth in both areas. But what if we learned to see scripture and nature what the philosopher Francis Bacon called the book of God's word and the book of God's works. What if we saw them as complementary? What if they were complementary revelations of who God is and what he's doing rather than competing ideologies? A third area where we need to be prepared to have difficult conversations is sexuality without getting into a lot of details, 81% of resilient disciples believe that God designed sex to be between a man and a woman in a committed marriage. However, only half of them said their churches help them live wisely when it comes to their sexuality. Why aren't we having this conversation, church? The world certainly isn't shying away from it. 
The culture around us isn't afraid to have the conversation. So why aren't we? If the only place our teens and our young adults are hearing about sex is from the culture, then it shouldn't surprise us when their views on sexuality look more like the culture around us than they do the views of Scripture. These are just a few of the conversations that we need to have as followers of Jesus. There are many other hard conversations taking place that we need to be prepared to participate in as followers of Jesus, as citizens of another kingdom. But if we're ever going to gain the right to have those conversations with the people around us, we're going to have to learn how to earn that right. I've found that starting a relationship by telling people they're wrong doesn't usually work too well. Maybe you've had a different experience. But if we're going to earn the right to have these conversations with the people around us, we've got to lead with love. People have to know that we care about them as a person, as an individual. Most likely that's got to take place over the course of time and through multiple interactions before they're willing to listen to what we have to say. We've got to learn how to listen to understand before we try to be understood. Finally, number three. If we're going to live faithful lives in digital Babylon, we need to work together for the sake of others. You see, we're called as the people of God to form a generative community that blesses others. A community that creates and fosters abundance. That's part of being made in the image of a creating God that we spoke about last week. And just as God told Abram before he became Abraham, when he called Abram into that covenant relationship, God said, I will bless you. To be a blessing to the nations. And that's true for us as well today. If God blesses us, he's blessing us for the sake of others. So those who have become resilient disciples have often been given real opportunities to make a difference in people's lives through experiences with their church, whether that's a short-term mission trip or service opportunities. This isn't just about letting people tag along while we do ministry. It's about inviting them to be full participants in what God is doing and what he wants to do through and with them. This culture that we've been calling digital Babylon isn't going to disappear overnight, even if things continue to change and morph. But even if it did, we don't know what's going to replace it. We've got to learn to be and to form resilient disciples in the midst of whatever culture we find ourselves in. When we prepare our young people, our kids, our disciples for a world that doesn't still exist, we're undercutting our witness. And we're passing on a flimsy faith that won't last and doesn't stand up, and we're setting them up to fail. Friends, if we're going to be and to form 
followers of Jesus who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live vibrant lives in the spirit, we must show them how to engage in countercultural mission, in God's mission. Like Obadiah, who knew what following God could cost him and was willing to risk it anyway. Trusting God's power at work in the world and living differently from the norms of the kingdom we're living in because we're living according to the norms of the kingdom we belong to. This is what we're called to. Not just to culture wars, not just to to standing up for positions, but to be formed and shaped 